Today is April 30th, 2020. People's School, Marxist Leninist Studies is finishing the book called Left Wing Communism, An Infantile Disorder by Comrade Lenin. This is the month of Lenin. The 22nd was the 150th birthday of Comrade Lenin. Tonight we're going to actually summarize everything that Comrade Lenin said about ultra-left of his day in England, Germany. He called them left communists, put left in italics. So on page 56 of the New Outlook version of the book, it says several conclusions. And he starts out, the revolutions of February and October 1917, to remind people the February Revolution was led by the Social Democrats and led by Kerensky. In October, the Bolsheviks led their revolution. So he's talking about those revolutions. Lenin says, they led to all-around development of the Soviets on a nationwide scale and to the victory of the Soviets in the proletarian revolution. In less than two years, the international character of the Soviets, which in Russian is councils, the workers' councils, the spread of this form of struggle and organization to the world, working class, and to the historical mission of the Soviets in Russia, became the grave diggers, the heirs and the successors to bourgeois parliamentarism and of bourgeois democracy in general. It is now essential that communists of every country should quite consciously take into account both the fundamental objectives of the struggle against right-wing opportunism and left doctrinarianism, and the concrete features which this struggle assumes and must inevitably assume in every country of the world in conformity with the specific character of its economics, its politics, culture, national composition, etc., whether it was a colony, etc. Dissatisfaction with the Second International, and remind everyone, the Second International was the international formed by the socialist parties of every country. Dissatisfaction with the Second International is felt everywhere, and it is spreading, and it is growing, both because of its opportunism and because of its inability or its incapacity to create a really centralized, notice the words he used, centralized, and really leading center capable of directing the international tactics of the revolutionary working class movement in its struggle for a world Soviet republic. It should be clearly realized that such a leading center can never be built on stereotyped, mechanically equated, and identical tactical rules of struggle. As long as the national and the state distinctions exist between peoples of each of the countries, and there will continue to exist for a very long time, even after the dictatorship of the proletariat has been set up on a worldwide scale, the unity of the international tactics of the communist working class movement in all countries, demands not the elimination of a variety, 
of this suppression of national distinctions, which is a pipe dream at present, but an application of the fundamental principles of communism, which is Soviet power and the dictatorship of the proletariat. The proletarian vanguard has been won over ideologically. What he means by that is, at this point, the decision was made to follow Lenin and not other forces within the communist movement and within the socialist movement. They rejected Mensheviks, they rejected the supporters of Menshevikism, etc. Then he goes on, he says a very good statement. Victory cannot be won with just the vanguard. To throw only the vanguards into the decisive battle between the entire class, the working class, between the broad masses, have taken up a position either of direct support for the vanguard or at least sympathetic neutrality towards it and precluded support for the enemy. In other words, at that time, it was either the white forces led by the aristocracy and the czarist generals, or the red forces that was led by the Bolshevik party. So people that were in the middle were shrinking down less and less. People were making a decision for one side or the other. Then he goes on, he talks about propaganda. Propaganda and agitation alone are not enough for the working class, for the broad masses of the working people, those who are oppressed by capital, those who take such a stand against capital. For that, masses must have their own political experience. Such is the fundamental law of all great revolutions, which has been confirmed with compelling force and clearness, not only in Russia, but in Germany as well. To turn resolutely towards communism, and here he uses the term communism, not socialism, to turn resolutely towards communism, it was necessary not only for the ignorant and often illiterate masses of present-day Russia, but also for the literate and well-educated masses of Germany to realize from their own bitter experience the absolute importance and the spinelessness, the absolute helplessness and civility to the bourgeoisie and the utter vileness of the government of the Second International. Just a reminder, the Second International after World War One, the government in Germany was the Social Democrats, people like Schneiderman, Norse, and Ebert, the same people who killed Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht. They allowed the Freikorps to kill them and throw them in the river in Berlin. As long as it was, and it still is, a question of winning the workers' vanguard over to the side of communism, priority went and still goes to propaganda work, even propaganda circles with all their parochial limitations, they're useful under these conditions, and they do produce good results. But when it is a question of practical action by the masses of people, if one may put it that way, of vast armies, of the alignment of all class forces in a given society, 
for the final victory. Then propagandist methods alone, the mere repetition of the truths of pure communism are of no help. In these circumstances, one must not count in the thousands like the propagandists belonging to a small group that has not yet been given leadership to the masses. Lenin, he goes out of his way to start talking about communism and not the word Bolshevikism anymore. Now I'm going to open up for questions. This is more an observation of how Lenin basically predicted the future of social democrats turning on socialists and communists, even those like Rosa Luxemburg who were not Bolsheviks. They wanted to ally with fascists more than true progressive socialists or communists. Okay, thank you. I want to remind everyone the term social fascism. That's a term that was used in our movement, the communist movement, and it had a definition. It basically said that social democrats prepare the road for the future fascists to take over. And we used to say in the 1960s, during the anti-Vietnam War movement, if you scratch a liberal, you'll find a conservative. That was a common feeling that many of the young people had who came into the peace movement against the war in Vietnam. And it's very similar to this idea of social fascism, what it is. What would Lenin say is the difference between communism and Bolshevikism? I noticed his terminology changed. I think it's because the Bolsheviks, he was referring to a political party, but he talks about communism, which is a stage after socialism, according to us. Other people do not view it that way, but followers of Lenin do. With our situation at the present time, how do you fit this discussion with different organizations, parties, and groups that exist now? What do we learn from it? That's a very good question. I think we have to learn to be careful. I think that's the word, careful, not to trust social democracy, that it's dangerous. Historically, it has proven itself what it is. At the same token, not in this work, but in other works, he talks about we have to work in a coalition with certain groups that we normally do not accept into the party, but we can work with them on issues, whether it's the trade union movement or whether it's tenants organization or a peace organization, the peace movement. That to me is basically what he's saying and what we have experienced in this country Lenin said something very interesting, and that is, we will keep our stand, but we work with other groups and organizations so that we could bring them into the Bolshevik philosophy. That's correct. We have to keep our own principles. We cannot right. throw our principles away for right. the sake of a coalition work with right. others. We have to keep our principles and we can still work with groups that are working on the same issue, but we should not melt our principles into theirs. What can be said about the conservative who is ideologically brainwashed but 
legitimately bought into the ideas of liberty and freedom and who could be turned to see the actual material conditions. It has to do with class consciousness, number one. Many Americans do not have class consciousness of who they are. They think if they make a certain amount of money, they're middle class, when that's not the definition according to Marx. Middle class means where you are in relation to the means of production. So a person who owns a candy store is not near the means of production. A worker who works in a factory producing steel is much closer to the means of production. A lawyer who works for the city or for the town gets a wage. He's part of working class. A lawyer who works for himself and signs deals with corporations, even works for corporations, is not part of the working class. That lawyer is part of the middle class. I'm from a rural farming area, very conservative. A lot of the so-called left in our country, I would call them quote-unquote left, because they're all ultra-leftists or they follow the DSA, which is what we're studying right now. They follow this social democracy idea. We should direct our attention towards the working class. And what that means in 2020, it means essential workers. These are the people we should engage. And they're going to disagree with us at first. They're not going to like what we say. But these so-called leftists, they're not even allies. The next thing I wanted to read from Lenin on page 57 of left-wing communism. It is now essential that communists of every country should quite consciously take into account the fundamental objectives of the struggle against right opportunism and left doctrinarism and the concrete features which this struggle assumes and must inevitably assume in every country. Now, I think this is important because we have talked about many times the tightrope, how our party views the tightrope as very important, where on the top of a circus tent, you have a tightrope, and you got to go from one end of the tent to the other, comrades. And you got to go very slow. You have to be patient, cannot rush. And as you go across the tightrope, you got to make sure you don't fall on one side of the tightrope or the other side. And most groups in the left, all of them, in my opinion, fall on one side or the other. So on one side you have reformism, you have revisionism, and you have right opportunism. That will destroy our party and it will destroy our movement that Lenin started. On the other side of the tightrope is ultra-leftism. And that goes from anything from syndicalism, the IWW, to Trotskyism, anarchism, and Maoism, and petty bourgeois radicalism. If you fall on that side, you're going to destroy the party and destroy what Lenin's talking about. So you've got to be careful. And most groups in the left basically fall into one side or the other. I think that's the difference between this party, is that we're trying to do what basically... Many of us learned when we used to be in the old party when it was Marxist-Leninist that you have to make sure you don't go too far to the left or too far to the right. If you go too far ahead of the masses, you'll lose them. But at the same token, the danger that some people on the left do is they follow the trade union movement, and it's called tailism. 
Lenin warned us against tailism. So you cannot be tailist and you cannot be a vanguard so far ahead that you'll lose them. You have to be right where the people are at. And that's the difference. He talks about the capitalists. Here's what he says. At the same time, the capitalists see practically only one aspect of the Bolshevik movement. And what is that? They see insurrection, they see violence, and they see terror. And this is Lenin talking. It therefore strives to prepare itself for resistance and opposition primarily in this field. It is possible that in certain instances and in certain countries, for brief periods, it will succeed in this. But we must reckon with such an eventuality, and we have absolutely nothing to fear if it does succeed. Communism is emerging in positively every sphere of public life. Its beginnings are to be seen literally on all sides. The contagion, notice the words he's using, contagion like the virus. The contagion, to use the favorite metaphor of the capitalists and their capitalist police, the one mostly to their liking, a contagion has very thoroughly penetrated the organism of the working class and has completely permeated it. If special efforts are made to block one of the channels, the contagion will find another one, sometimes very unexpectedly. Life will assert itself, let the capitalists rave, let they work themselves into a frenzy, let them go to extremes, let them commit follies, take vengeance on the Bolsheviks in advance and kill and endeavor to kill as many of us as they have done. In acting thus, the capitalists are acting as all historically doomed classes have done. Communists should know that in any case, the future belongs to them. Therefore, we can and we must combine the most intense passion in our ideology in the great revolutionary struggle with the coolest and most sober appraisal, frenzied ravings of the capitalists. The Russian Revolution was cruelly defeated in 1905. The Russian Bolsheviks were defeated in July 1917. Over 15,000 German communists were murdered as a result of the provocation and cunning maneuvers of the Social Democrats in Germany, Schneiderman and Norsk, N-O-S-K-E who were working hand-in-hand hand with the capitalists and the monarchist generals in Germany. White terror is raging in Finland, is raging in Hungary. But in all the cases, in all the countries, communism is becoming steeled and it is growing. Its roots are so deep that persecution of us does not weaken us or debilitate us, but only strengthens us. Only one thing is lacking to enable us to march forward more confidently and firmly to victory, namely 
the universal and thorough awareness of all communists in all countries of the necessity to display a utmost flexibility in our tactics. The communist movement, which is developing magnificently, now lacks, especially in the advanced countries of the West, this awareness and the ability to put it in practice. Communists must exert every effort to direct the working class movement and the social development in general along a straight and short road to the victory of Soviet power and the dictatorship of the proletariat on a worldwide scale. That is an incontestable truth, but it is enough to take one little step further, a step that might seem to be in the same direction, and truth turns into error. We have only to say, as the German and British ultra-left did, that we recognize only one road, and only the direct road, and that we will not permit conciliatory maneuvers or compromising. And it will be a mistake if we did that, which may cause, and in the part has already caused, and is causing, very grave prejudice to communism. Right doctrinarianism persisted in recognizing only the old forms, and it became utterly bankrupt, for it did not notice the new forms. Left doctrinarianism persists in the unconditional repudiation of certain old forms. That's the ultra-left. The ultra-left, they fail to see that the new content is forcing its way through all and sundry forms, that it is our duty as communists to master all the forms and to learn how to do them. So I'm going to stop right there and open up to any questions what exactly is the difference between Maoism and Mao Zedong thought? I used to call myself a Maoist, but then I started to realize that I have a lot of different views from a lot of the people who call themselves Maoists, and then I fit more along the lines of people who say that they practice Mao Zedong thought, they call themselves Marxist-Leninists, just not Maoists. Like, what's the difference between the two? Okay, I'll give you my understanding of it in my lifetime. Communists have always supported Mao Zedong in the mountains of China when he fought against Japanese invasion of China. We mm-hmm. supported the revolution in 1949. For 10 years, China was a supporter of the Soviet Union from 49 to 59. Then 1960, something happened. China-Soviet uh, split. Correct. That, to us, it was the beginning of what we call Maoism. In China, there was something called the Great Leap Forward, if anybody remembers that, where they closed down the factories that the Soviets built for them, and they decided to make steel in the backyards of the peasants. And each peasant hut had his own little cement oven, and they made steel that way. Of course, the steel was inferior, it was brittle, it fell apart, but that was done on the issue of the Great Leap Forward. Then there was the culture revolution, which our party does not support, and many groups on the left do. In our view, it was an attack on the Communist Party. Under the guise of attacking a bureaucracy, the party was the first victim. And the idea of Soviet social imperialism 
in the late 60s and 70s that was spread by Mao Zedong and the Little Red Book. That's what we refer to as Maoism, and many of the people that follow use that period of China's history with the party. They use that period to identify who they are. It's basically anti-Sovietism in one way or the other, dressed as anti-Stalinism, in my opinion. There is a distinct difference between Mao Zedong thought and quote-unquote Maoism. First of all, there's no such word as Maoism in Chinese. I'm coming from the Chinese perspective. My time spent there with the party members and stuff. In Chinese, it's Mao Zedong Suqia, which is Mao Zedong thought. They don't consider it an advancement upon Marxism-Leninism. They see it as an application of Marxism-Leninism to the Chinese condition. And the party, after the death of Mao, rejected aspects of Mao Zedong thought, such as the great proletarian cultural revolution and aspects of the great leap forward as ultra-leftist. And they point the finger at the Gang of Four and people like Lin Biao, which is true. They had heavy influence, but Mao Zedong was also in compliance with it. But the main thing to understand is that Chinese people do not believe that Mao Zedong thought can be applied outside of China, and that Maoism is a Western construction. In Germany in, say, 1933, the communists were blamed for the Nazis taking power because they were ultra-leftists and not cooperating oh. with social democrats. My question is, were they being ultra-leftists, or were the Social Democrats just making it impossible to cooperate with them? If they're throwing people in the river and killing 15,000 of them, how can a communist cooperate with that kind of... Exactly. Uh, yeah, that's my view. Exactly. In 1936-37, the policy of the Comintern changed. We wanted to now work with the leadership of the Social Democratic Party. Before that time... We worked with the rank-and-file, comrade, but not with the leadership, for the reasons you gave. And the term social fascism came from that period of time of what happened in Germany. Thank you. Lenin forms. What does he mean by every form of communism, and what is that in your view? I think Lenin was talking about every form of struggle. That's what I got out of that. If we never tried a form of struggle before, in developing and pushing our ideology, we should not let that hold us back, that we should be open to new forms and tactics and struggle. That's what I got out of it, Comrade. Around the same time as the October Revolution, there was the German Revolution, and there was also the Easter Rising in Ireland. I'm wondering, to what degree do you think deviations from the tightrope, as you said, played a role in both of those revolutions and how they worked out? Okay, well, the uprising in Berlin was drowned in blood by the Social Democrats. They put it down. There were other uprisings throughout Germany. In Hungary, there was a short-lived Soviet Republic, and it was drowned in blood by the aristocracy in Hungary. And you're right, in Ireland. There's a famous quote from Lenin. There are decades where nothing happens. There are weeks where decades happen. And that's what was happening in Europe egged on by the Bolshevik Revolution. Remember, they had three revolutions in a short period of time in Russia. It was a revolutionary period. And I think strongly that this has to do with World War I. Famous quote from Lenin, and everybody should remember this, the seeds of revolution are in world wars. Every war 
the seeds of revolution. And it was that period where World War I, from 1914 to 1918, and even after that, that's when all this stuff happened. It's not a coincidence. I think what happened, too, in Germany is that they weren't really ready for an armed uprising. But the German army, which led the reactionary force, provoked it, an armed uprising that was easily crushed by them. Don't we, comrades, think and believe that the total surrender of the former Soviet Union, which was the greatest model in history for socialism, and also to be an example for the working class movement in the developed countries of Europe and North America, and also the national liberation movements, and followed by the left-wing movement. I think the Maoist movement was a left-wing infantile disorder. That's how I concluded about it. So don't you think the total capitulation of those major socialist models contributed negatively to the consciousness of the working class in the West? Of course. Yes, I think it was a real depressionary period. Yes, I do. Also, the West now was able to push through legislation that attacked the working class, the social services, unemployment insurance. Everything went down after that period. You're correct, Hamid. I think most people agree with the idea that you're not supposed to go too far ultra-left or too far right opportunist, but I feel like everybody on the left feels like they're right in the middle zone. But it's hard to tell how to find that middle ground. Is there like any kind of objective way, methodology, that we can use to determine whether you're being too far to the ultra-left or right in a certain situation? Let me give you my view of that. Lenin said, if something hurts the working class, it's negative. If it helps the working class, it's positive. That's important to remember. Remember the three stands in the Soviet party. Stalin was considered the center. Trotsky was considered on his left. And Bukharin, don't let's forget that name, very important. Bukharin was on the right of Stalin. Bukharin was the father of market socialism. Remember that. The new economic policy. Trotsky was the father of revolution at one time throughout the world. Stalin's claim to fame was we have to have developed socialist construction in one country. And once we build that up, then we can go forward to the rest of the world. And those are the three roads that we had to choose, comrade, at that time. And the World Communist Movement chose the middle road. I think that became our barometer, and therefore everything not part of that is considered ultra. And anything that's considered accommodating yourself to the capitalist world is considered right opportunism. That was the beginning of it, in my opinion. You mentioned Bukharin and the NEP. I just wanted to confirm the NEP was not a bad move, right? You're asking my opinion. I think it was yeah. needed at a certain period of time. The question is, when was it not needed and still in effect? That's the question that has to be answered. I heard from someone, I forget who, that Stalin was originally wanting to continue the NEP, but he canceled it because of the threat of war and they needed to industrialize quickly to prepare for that. Is that true? I heard that also as one of the reasons. 
why he turned to socialist construction. I do know that Armand Hammer was one of the American industrialists who was investing in the early Soviet Republic. In response to the conversation about conservative person who could be brought to the left, if you dig a little bit deeper into many Republicans and libertarians, you'll often find a huge dissatisfaction for bourgeoisie politics in our country that is entirely based on a loose class analysis, and it can be really easily cultivated inside of every working class person. There's some sort of class outrage that can be focused on to really build that radicalization. So that's something always to think about with our conservative working class folk out there. And then with the line between ultra-left and right opportunism, I think material pragmatism is what we really need to focus on, not just what we've been told by liberalism and propaganda will actually help the working class, but really looking at what the most material conditions are going to be for the working class when we're thinking about where we need to fall on those lines. Thank you, Kermit, for those wise words. Somebody who asked earlier of an objective way to make sure that we're not having right or left deviations. One of my favorite terms is scientific socialists, because there's to make sure that we're applying the science of a dialectical and historical materialism pretty much at all times. And a lot of the other parties, like let's say PSL or IWW and the anarchists, they're not doing that because it's not a cornerstone of their ideology. The discussion about social fascism was really valid. How social democrats side with the bourgeoisie in an attempt to save capital, sometimes violently. I wanted to give a shout out to a text on Marxist.org from J.T. Murphy. It's called The Growth of Social Fascism in Great Britain. It's from 1930. And it really gives great examples of how social democracy tries to crush revolutionary movements. Social fascism. I do like that it's being mentioned. Now we live in the age of Bernie Sanders, and even though he himself is not really a social democrat, he's a New Deal democrat, which is not social democracy. If anything, it's like Bismarckian economics played into the American conditions. And we as leftists, even if you were to win the nomination and beat Trump, I feel like it's good that people like us exist, because when he fails, we will be the people that point it out first. Yeah. an empirical, scientific basis, which I'm pretty happy about. And that's happening, comrades. Everyone on the phone should hear that. Nobody leaves us angry. At this point in their life, they may not be willing to work in a communist party, but they see us as basically good working class people. Okay, I want to thank everybody for showing up tonight. I hope everybody learned something more than when they first got on the phone. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information, or if you're interested in attending classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube channel, or email info at psmls.org.